Hello, and welcome to Newsmakers, Columbus Business First podcast about Central Ohio leaders and decision makers. I'm reporter Carrie Ghosh. Today's guest is Harley Blakeman, who was left homeless at age 15, imprisoned at 19, and today leads a Columbus startup that has raised a cumulative $1.3 million over the past two years. His company, Honest Jobs, is a software platform that intelligently matches job seekers who were formerly incarcerated with fair chance employers. We discuss his path from Florida trailer park to Georgia prison to an office in Franklinton's Idea Foundry. Blakeman describes how Honest Jobs was inspired by his own barriers to employment even after turning his life around. His goal for the business is to help all 656,000 people released each year from prison to find employment within 60 days. He also explains why an even better outcome would be policy changes that put him out of business. This one is on the longer side, but I hope you find Blakeman's story as compelling as I did. And thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to Columbus Business First. Today, our guest is Harley Blakeman, who is the founder and CEO of Honest Jobs, a technology platform to help uh, the formerly incarcerated find employment and and also de-risk that employment process for employers. You founded this 2017, was it? About three years uh, 2018 is when we kind of pivoted to the jobs focus, and that's when we created the Honest Jobs LLC. Why don't we start from the beginning? You have a compelling uh, personal backstory that led you to create this company. I grew up in Florida. I was a very small family, just my mom, dad, and brother. My mother got addicted to drugs after losing a lot of weight when I was about 14 years old. And she divorced my father after 20 years of marriage. And really it was drugs and alcohol, I think drove her to divorcing my father and and kind of leaving my dad, myself, and my brother behind. Um, And then shortly after she left, we didn't have much of a relationship with her for about a year. And then my father passed away in a motorcycle accident. That basically left me and my brother kind of slipped through the cracks. My brother was 18. He had a job. He was able to get like his own place in the small town we were growing up in. It was pretty affordable to live there. Uh, However, myself, I was only 15. I didn't go to foster care. I didn't have like a reliable older relative to live with. I just started living with friends like on couches and uh, staying wherever I could and it's just a bad path for a 15 year old to be down. So I ended up dropping out of high school mostly because I didn't have transportation or like a place to wash my laundry. And then uh, when you're not in high school, you're 16 years old. I was skateboarding all day, every day and just hanging out with older kids and started smoking weed and drinking more often. And then I got into uh, other drugs. And before you knew it, I was just hanging out with the wrong crowd and committing crimes, you know, pretty petty crimes, nothing, never got into gangs or violence or anything like that, but, you know, petty theft, drug, using drugs, selling drugs. And uh, eventually by the time I was 18, I was selling drugs a lot, even selling drugs across state lines into Georgia. And uh, right after my 18th birthday, I got arrested in Georgia with, uh, I don't, God, I don't remember the exact amount, but several hundred prescription pills, Xanax, Oxycontin, marijuana. And uh, I was sentenced to 14 months in prison when I was uh, arrested when I was 18 since when I was 19 
I did 14 months incarcerated in Georgia. And right before I got out, I had no plans of like where I was going to go. I was basically going to be homeless again. <laughs> um, a distant relative here in Columbus, Ohio reached out to me and said, you know, you seem like the letters you've written us seem like you have your head on straight. Like if you're willing to move to Ohio, we, we can pick you up and bring you back here, give you a place to stay and help you get on your feet. And, uh, you know, I'm eternally grateful for that. Although they didn't provide like financial support, they gave me shelter for the first two months. They gave me a bicycle and they even connected me with one of their friends who owned a restaurant here in Columbus. And I worked on and off for that chain, that restaurant chain for, you know, better part of five years while I put myself through college. Yeah. So you, I assume you got your GED while in prison. I, and yeah, I got my GED. What, what, what changed besides being, you know, forcibly dry? Uh, what, what changed about you in prison and what did you learn about your future prospects within yourself and uh, with your fellow inmates? One of the biggest points I've pointed out in the past is that I was sober <laughs> for the first time in a very long time. And also like I had no, I knew no one. I didn't have any friends to like party with or to like get in trouble with. So I was just in there. And also I was very young and I've always been a, a, a good guy. Like I, I was never a bad person, never wanted to hurt people, never entertain things like that. So like in jail and prison, I could see that certain crowds I didn't want to be around didn't fit in with them. And really from the time I got there, I was like, this isn't for me. <laughs> you know, like I'm sure everyone wants to say prison's not for them. But the reality is, it's like some people, they don't want to be around stuff like that. And then some people are fairly comfortable being in a room full of like rough people. In my mind, I was like, this isn't where, how I want to spend my life. I can see that there's only like three people here that are like my type of people. I'm going to like try to stay near them. And then doing that, what do you do when you have no one to hang out with and nothing to do and no drugs or, you know, you read. So I really picked up books. Books are also a great way to escape from your reality. Some people read books because they're in poverty and it gets, helps them escape it. Some people read books because they're in prison and it helps them escape the reality. And uh, that's what it was for me. So I read probably 65 books over 14 months the GED was something I found really interesting. I actually got my GED while I was in jail before I went to prison. So typically you go to jail and you're sitting in jail while you're waiting to go to prison. And that's, that's for me, I was in jail for two and a half months and uh, I signed up for the GED while I was in jail and I actually, you know, passed it first try. And that kind of was my first glimpse at like the last I remembered when I dropped out of high school, I had D's and F's. When I took the GED, I passed it like above average scores. And I, I just knew like, okay, maybe there's something here. Like I'm enjoying reading books. I know I don't want to be here. And in fact, these test scores are showing me that like, maybe I could do something more with my life. I had no idea that I would end up going on to get a business degree or a bachelor's degree, but it was my first glimpse of intellectual interest, I guess. Tell me about that first job. Do you think you would have gotten it absent the vouching from your family? What was that interview like? I really don't know. I do think I could have. I've seen lots of people get their first job after prison without having a family member vouch for them, but I know it's extremely hard and it's hard for a lot of reasons. You don't know if you should tell them or not. If you do tell them, they're like, well, that was weird. You didn't need to tell me that. Now I don't know if I should hire you because you randomly told me that you've been to prison. If you don't tell them that and they find out about it, then they might fire you. Sometimes you don't know when you're 
cold interviewing for a job, are these people pretty laid back and reasonable or are they very professional and stern? Like the people I was working with, I was very lucky. My first day, like I came, came to Georgia, uh, came to Ohio, went to sleep, woke up the next morning and went. And that day they said, you can start washing dishes today. Like it had already been determined. It almost wasn't an interview. Like, yes, I interviewed, but they had already told my aunts like, yes, we can let him wash dishes. So that's not the reality for 99% of people. That being said, I, I know that very entry-level jobs are attainable for everyone. And, and it's something I encourage people to think about is when you come home from prison, you find a, like I call it the ABCs, you find a job, then a better job, then a career. But mm -hmm. if you're not willing to lower your expectations down to a job first, it becomes really challenging. A lot of people want a better job or a career right out of the gate. And that's really hard when you don't have uh, a lot of great references or work experience. When you say put yourself through college, uh, that was OSU's Fisher College, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I started at Columbus State Community College. I, I did uh, four semesters there or three semesters there. And I applied to Ohio State just honestly with no expectations of getting it. I just did it. And when I got in, I couldn't believe it. And my family couldn't believe it either. They were like, whoa, that's cool. Okay, he's going to try to get a business degree from Ohio State. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to try. Surprisingly enough, I, I excelled at Ohio State too. And prior to going to college, like I dropped out in ninth grade. Like I had never seen trigonometry. I'd never seen out college algebra. I'd never seen any of this stuff. And I was going back to college at, you know, 21, 22 years old. And I hadn't even done any math since I was 16, <laughs> uh, other than the, the, the GED, which is very short form. So it, it was challenging but it's what kept me straight and what helped me get through probation and parole. I valued that I was able to perform in the same capacity as other students who didn't have the background and experience I had. So it really drove me to spend the extra hours studying and meeting with advisors and focusing on my grades and my extracurricular stuff too, like uh, honors program and volunteering, things like that. You had definitely a tough path, but it sounds like folks were fair to you along the way. What persuaded you that there's a need for what you built? You know, what did you see around you that your story isn't every story? So people weren't necessarily fair to me along the way. I was lucky okay. enough to have the privilege of having some people. Look, connect, connections are everything. Like if you know somebody, it really doesn't matter if you have a record. They'll can, Somebody who owns a big business can give you a job, problem solved. But we know that most people who are impacted by the criminal justice system come from poverty. The real privilege is the connections we have. And poor people are born with no, no real valuable connections. So people coming out of incarceration don't have the ability to just call their uncle or their, or their friend or their old frat brother that can help them get a job. And so, so that was my real uh, hand up in the situation was my aunt's connection to uh, the, the restaurant. In college is when I first experienced this. I had gotten into Fisher. After two semesters, I was in honors. I was volunteering, working on a project for the state of Ohio. I was writing my book, but I could not find a job. I was still working at this restaurant. My first glimpse was I finally got a company that was going to let me be an assistant store manager in Grandview. Mm -hmm. And it was like a dollar pay raise. And I was working the front desk. I was basically a store manager of a one person 
store. It was like ran by one person. So I was the store manager. I was really a glorified cashier, but it was a, my title looked better than cook at a restaurant. I was an assistant store manager. Then I spent a year and a half trying to get a job as an intern because I'm a, I'm a Fisher College a business student, I should be able to get an intern with a consulting firm or Boeing or, you know, whatever the big companies that recruit from there. There's like 500 companies that recruit every year from Fisher and I'm in the top, you know, 5% of GPA students. I should be able to get an internship. Didn't get an internship my entire college career. I, I would get interviews and I'd meet with them, talk with them. And then when they would be considering candidates, I would self-disclose like, hey, I just want to let you know before you do a background check on me, this is what you're going to find. I've been doing X, Y, and Z to overcome it. Here's why I'm not a risk. I'm actually a, a great candidate for this job. And then they would always get back to me and say, I'm sorry, we're going with other candidates. And what I started to realize was my criminal record was playing into that. And what really solidified it for me though was my senior year when I was graduating. Most of the students find a job before graduation. I applied for dozens and dozens and dozens of jobs. And I did my research on all of them. I spent so many grueling hours preparing for interviews. And almost every company I applied for gave me a first and second round interview. But when the background came up, they all told me they couldn't hire me. I graduated unemployed top of my class. And it wasn't until four months after graduation, I finally found a job in Newark, Ohio at a, at a manufacturing plant as a production coordinator. And I was, and I was getting paid good money, but it wasn't until you know a year and a half into that job where I really decided that uh, I could help change that, the, the problem that I believe was the underlying problem that I had and that I believe a lot of other people have. You started, did you start this company while you were still working for that manufacturer or did you leave to start no. it? Like, how do you get the capital to start? I mean, how did, first, how did you conceive this should be a tech platform? It should be a LinkedIn type of situation. Um, and how did you get the capital to just get started? Or was it something you did on nights and weekends? Yeah, so while I was at Owens Corning, I was contemplating how, I was, first off, I was working on a project for the state of Ohio. I was still volunteering, speaking at jails and prisons. I had published my book. It's for how to find a job with a criminal record. And it had sold like three, 4,000 copies. And people were reaching out to me saying like, hey, we'd like you to come talk at this event. We'll pay for you to fly out this conference, it's a keynote speech. And like, I realized like a lot of people struggle with finding a job and people believe that my book and the insights I have are valuable. So I wanted to create an online learning management system, which was basically 10 online classes that can teach someone what they need to get back into the workforce after incarceration. And I started working on that and I launched it while I was at Owens Corning. And I had like 20 people paying me $8 a month to have access to this platform. And I convinced a nonprofit to, to pay $500 a year for it. And I was like, okay, well, there's something here. I, it's not much money yet, but if I focus on it full time, it could be. And I just looked at my 401k and I had like eight grand. If I took it all out right now, I could have eight grand. And, you know, I was just obsessing over it. I couldn't sleep at night. I was thinking about how like, this is what I should be doing with my time is, is you know, this is my calling, I think is helping people uh, overcome this problem. I just put in my two weeks <laughs> and uh, went for it and uh, quickly learned that $8,000 is not enough money to build a company. For some people it might be, but for me it wasn't. I still had a lot of problems with the business model I had not figured out, uh, but I'm glad I took the leap because 
it took me a good year and a half before I really learned the fundamentals of what I needed to make it work, but I just stuck to it. I went through RevOne's Learning Lab, then I went through C-Change here in Columbus, all with the same idea. And after C-Change, I kind of finally had decided this isn't the right path. And I surveyed all of the people from like my email list and my YouTube channel and my paying customers to figure out these are the 20 services I might be able to provide, which ones have the most interest. And like staggering amount of the people I surveyed said help finding our, a, a job is the, the pain point that we need solved. So. Meaning, um, and first I want to uh, let people know, Sea Change is a business accelerator based here in Columbus that is specifically for social enterprise startups. And when you say help finding a job, it's not the kind of training and here's the steps you need to take, but really linking people yeah. with potential employees. Exactly. And it was more articulated. It was like, train you how to find a job, connecting you with vetted employers who hire people with records. That was like the, I don't remember the exact language, but something along yeah. those lines was the one that people really wanted. And I was like, this is going to be hard. And it's not exactly, my belief is like, if you can teach someone how to self-improve, that's the best rather than being like, here's a job. If you hand someone a job, it's not as good as teaching them how to find a job, right? But if this is what people want, the market's telling me that this is what people want, I'm going to entertain that. So I spent a weekend just brainstorming, mapping out some stuff. And then I, I found a, a guy who was a software developer who helped me build a very simple like an MVP of the site. And I went to a local manufacturer and said, hey, I heard that you guys hire people with records. Could I send people to you? And if you hire them, pay me. And this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to build this marketplace that's going to allow this. And they wrote me a $500 check on the spot and said, start sending us people and we'll hire them. And I started adding their jobs to the platform and getting people to apply. And then I got like three other employers to post jobs. And uh, Claire Coder, who's the CEO of OnFlow, um, was moving to New York at the time. And she invited me to her moving away party at Land Grant Brewery. And I'm just at Land Grant. And Claire says, hey, Harley, I'd like you to meet Tom. Tom's an investor of mine. I think he'd really like what you're doing. And Tom and I just talked over a beer and he gave me his card. And then a month later, I asked him to invest. And he was like, oh, I don't think you're quite ready yet. And then I waited two or three more weeks. I called him back and was like, look, Tom, I can't go back to having a job. Like, I'm going to make this work. You should give me some money. And then <laughs> he wired me a hundred grand. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so and, and, and we only had $500 in revenue from one customer and we really didn't have a product or anything yet. We were just trying to figure it out for about the first year. I think he probably, it was like, what the hell was I thinking? But now, now I think he's, he feels like, you know, he invested in our mission. He invested in my, my backstory, me as a founder and a lot of VCs, try to do that, invest in founders uh, who have a strong connection. And now it looks like we're on a really great path to get him a return on his investment. But uh, that hundred grand gave me everything I needed to get to COVID. Mm -hmm. So uh, we went through, uh, I don't remember the exact timeline, a year, year and a half on a hundred grand. When COVID hit, he loaned us another $50,000 loan. The $50,000 loan got us right to getting into Techstars. Techstars, we got $120,000 through Techstars. The $120,000 from Techstars got us just to closing the seed round. Um, and then now we are funded for the next 16 months and we have some really promising things going on. 
what did the onset of the pandemic mean for the platform as far as, you know, there was mass unemployment. Did it affect your, the employers you were working with or were they hungry to hire uh, because they had a lot of the essential jobs or, you know, what, what, what happened with your platform during that time? Well, everyone was in panic, <laughs> including mm-hmm. us. Like we were like, well, are we closing this thing down? Do we need an investment? Do we need to just like lay everybody off and just float for the next year until things pick back up? I tried to do my best at engaging all the employers to, to see how we could still be helpful. Many, many of them canceled their paid plans right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but some of them stayed the way they were. Some of them engaged further. You know, a lot of the companies we were working with were considered essential employers. And there was this weird thing that happened because of COVID and there was a large misalignment of like, you know, this is what, I I guess this is what happens when the government gives checks to people is there's a lot of unemployed people and there's a lot of job openings, but they're not, they're not matching. So granted, most of the job openings were not like, you know, high paying careers. Uh, A lot of people in like marketing sales, you know, whatever, lost their jobs, uh, professional careers. But you think about uh, food service. Uh, manufacturing, warehousing, logistics. These are all industries that we serve. So we, we were able to keep some of our, our revenue and our customers, but we probably lost 80% of our revenue like within a month of, of the shutdown and really still have not gained it all of our customers back, but we've changed our model over this year to such a situation where now, you know, two of our customers can compensate for the loss of 20 of our previous customers because we've adjusted our business model. And then we also got our first government contract uh, during the pandemic. And it was really because of the pandemic, we were able to get the government contract because our technology is promising for state and local governments who are trying to get this demographic back into the workforce. It's already hard to get them into the workforce. And during a pandemic, it's even harder. So it's a loss of economic opportunity. It's a huge cost to the state if this population is just going to sit on the couch for the next year, uh, it's better if we can get them into the workforce. So we were able to sell our tech. Now we're talking to multiple states as well about how they can use our technology to help this population. What, what we do is we actually white label our technology to where our entire platform is branded. And then we have a public-private partnership. Hey, we're going to have this branded platform that's just for people impacted by the criminal justice system. And we're going to connect everyone coming home from jail or prison to this service for free. Anyone can create an account, create a profile. Employers can search through the profiles. They can also post jobs and these people can apply. And our technology just makes sure that people are applying for jobs they can actually get. So like we understand not every employer can hire uh, someone with a violence charge. Not every employer can hire someone with a DUI. Not every employer can hire someone with a theft charge. And our technology makes smart matches for efficiency. Employers can't interview everyone with a record and then they can enter they can only interview a subset based on the job duties of the job they want to apply for so that's what our tech does and our whole goal is to reduce the time from incarceration to employment right now the national average is about eight and a half months for someone to find a job after incarceration we're trying to reduce that down to like 60 days that's our goal it's valuable to the community from a public health and safety perspective taxpayers benefit businesses benefit there's just a, a long tail of benefits if we can get people back in the workforce fast. How do you identify uh, employers when you expand to a new market? 
we've been lucky enough to have a really great relationship with the nation's or the the world's largest HR uh, organization called SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management. So mm -hmm. they've paid for us to fly to all of their major conferences. They give us free booths. I'm on their their blogger team. I actually am wearing a SHRM blogger shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, so so we have a lot of connections. And really, over the last three years, I've built a really big following myself on LinkedIn with you know thousands of HR people hundreds of which are fair chance employers to some degree. And then also the states typically know dozens of companies that hire people with records. They just don't do a great job of managing that relationship. But like a more efficient process would be to have something that any company that reaches out can post jobs to and hire from without having to email you and maybe you respond, maybe you don't, maybe you have somebody, maybe you don't. I think most people understand that like a private technology is typically better than a public technology <laughs> ran technology. Uh, you know, not everything needs to be privatized. Something shouldn't be, for instance, like prisons probably shouldn't be privatized, but helping people get back in the workforce might actually be better if that's privatized. And mm -hmm. when you let someone who's very passionate about the topic, but we also have a really qualified technical team that has, you know, we can show you that we're capable of handling this. Uh, it's very valuable. So like I said, it's a public and private partnership why did you apply to Techstars and what did you learn? What what pivots came out of going through the program? Um, you just, so it's the 24th, you just had your demo day about two weeks ago, right? That's correct. Yeah, a week and a half ago. Yeah. Okay. So why did I apply? A wealthy individual that was, I was mentoring me, we had had about four calls. He was just telling me about connections and opportunities he knew about, sent me a link to this, you know, probably almost a year ago, eight months ago, probably told me to consider it. I wasn't like super excited about it, but when the pandemic hit, so he sent me the link pre-pandemic. When the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, this is about to be a really rough ride. Don't know how we're going to make it work necessarily. Let me apply and just see what happens. Like I don't have to do it. If they bring me in, then I get to make the decision. So I applied and I, I had talked to a, two other people I know that went through Techstars first to see like what their thoughts were on it. And, you know, I got generally good feedback about the experience. So Right at the time I applied, I brought in a new CTO and the new CTO helped me rebuild the platform custom before we were on a WordPress site. During pandemic, we were like, well, we just lost all our customers. We've got four months, five months of runway. What are we going to do with it? Let's at least build a, a, a product. So we built a product right around the time we launched our fully custom product. There's about a four or five month time frame of building out the fully custom product. Techstars got back to me and said, hey, we'd like to invite you in to be a part of the program. They explained to us three and a half month program, the equity piece, $120,000. The $120,000 gave me the money to bring the CTO on full time. And it was going to give us not a lot of runway, but about five more months, maybe four or five more months to figure this out. And our thought was, look, if we have this money, we have a fully custom product, and after four or five months, it doesn't work, then that's, you know, a sign like, hey, you know, we had resources, we had connections, we had mentorship. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's what accelerators for. That's what startups are about. You figure out if it's not going to work and you try something different. And, and so we took, we took it because honestly, like it valued our company at a pretty low valuation at a valuation that we thought was, you know, lower than what we would have liked. But during the pandemic, I mean, so many businesses are going under and failing that we feel lucky to have the opportunity to put 120 grand in the bank uh, as a startup. 
so we took that opportunity and our goals at the beginning of the program changed like immediately and then they changed again and then they changed again like we we set kpis for ourselves like these are the metrics we're going to track and, and focus on and pretty quickly we we're like okay that's not what we're focused on we went in thinking we're just going to get you know dozens of companies to sign up for this flat rate monthly subscription fee we're going to start working with like six probation departments by the end of this and we're going to we're going to grow our user base and after getting our first probation department to sign up and pay it worked like it was fairly easy to get a customer to pay us 10 grand a year a probation department but what we found was managing that relationship was complex because 10 grand we had uh, i think 30 probation officers that all had their own accounts and they had to invite people and we had to call them and remind them hey did you add your clients this week did you do this did you it's just a lot to manage and then we started exploring a state contract which is so much easier to manage, much more valuable to more people. And that learning came out of Techstars. So we had five really well-connected, knowledgeable, and resourceful mentors that we were meeting with weekly for 30-minute calls, five different people weekly. And then also one of my mentors in Techstars is I just complete luck, is a self-made billionaire. <laughs> he offered to mentor me. And then he is uh, also one of our investors. He ended up investing in us because he, using his own connections, like he would get me a call with like a government official or he would get me a call with another CEO and he would just listen to our conversations. And then based on the conversations he saw, he was like, I want to invest because I believe with mentorship, like you're going to be able to make this work and help a lot of people. Really, we didn't see revenue grow. We saw our users grow a lot through Techstars, but what we did was we had lots of thoughtful discussions and strategy sessions with mentors and now our investors. And we have a really strong game plan for the next 16 months on how we're going to execute. Is the advantage of working with a state rather than a county that they have a more a centralized way that you don't need to do individual onboarding with 30 different officers? You've got someone in the state agency that does that job for you. They are your product ambassador for you. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about it, all the correctional institutions are under one state, but mm -hmm. all the correctional institutions are, if, if I work with each county, it's very disjoint. Make sure that all the institutions are aware that this resource is available and, and we can host weekly or monthly live webinars where anyone from any of uh, the institutions can watch us and we can do uh, training sessions to help them understand how can someone just out of prison create an account? How do they apply for their first job? How do they tap into our digital resource center? How do they leverage our platform to, to its full capability? And the value that it provides can be, you know, a hundred times what we charge or 500 times what we charge the state. Uh, and not only creating a job, economic development, they're collecting income taxes instead of paying out benefits mm -hmm. and reducing recidivism. Did I get the full list? <laughs> well, also we have a robust and database of, mm -hmm. of really niche data that the government doesn't have. So we have over 8,000 users who self-disclose their criminal record to us. So we don't share this information with anybody. It's kept private, uh, but we know their address, their criminal history, obviously their name, their education, their work experience. We have their resume. So right now the government really doesn't have a great idea of when someone gets out of prison, where did they go? What's their work experience? What's their education? What's a profile of people coming out of jail or prison in Ohio? Are they able to find a job afterwards? If so, how long did it take? How much are they getting paid? 
Like mm -hmm. they don't know this stuff. They don't even, they're like, they might have some type of effort to track it, but I can tell you scour the internet for hours and you will not find any robust <laughs> data sets or studies where they actually know this stuff. And we will be able to turn around after a year or two and say, hey, let us give you our, our, our report. We can give you our quarterly or our annual report. This many people create an account with us this year. This is where they came from. This is their education, their work experience, how many jobs they've applied for. Like we can give a large data set back to back to the state that would be mm -hmm. really valuable for policy making, really valuable for community safety, understanding where dollars should be going. I, I think there's a lot of downstream value that would be cr created as well. So have you pivoted entirely to government agencies or your clients, or do the employers also pay to, to list jobs still? We don't have a state contract yet. Uh, mm -hmm. We're working on state contracts, but we don't have one yet. So right now our model is both. We mm -hmm. plan to charge states for white label platforms. It's, I know it's probably a long selling process, but it's actually a very simple process to stand up as far as the technology. And then the other model is any employer can post a job with us for free. You can post one job at a time for free. Let's say you have an entry-level manufacturing job. You can post it. You could hire 10 people a week forever for free. If you want to post a, a manufacturing job and a sales job at the same time, you have to opt into our, our paid plan. Our paid plan, it's a pretty big jump from $0 a month to $1,000 a month. But there's no contracts. You can cancel any time, and you can post unlimited jobs. You can hire unlimited people. All of your jobs show up in the top of search results. You also get access to our database. So when you pay $1,000 a month, you can search a city and state and look through all the profiles available in that city and state. You can view people's resumes. You can view their work experience, their education, all of that information. So that's 1000 bucks a month, unlimited jobs, unlimited hiring. The last piece is we have a direct placement program that we just rolled out this year. And what this is, is company works with us. We actually have internal recruiters now. We're hiring more. We just, we just hired another one full-time. And they are trained, certified by the Society for Human Resource Management on how to work with this population. So they're all certified fair chance recruiters. And they work on your behalf. So they will consult with your company, understand your needs, and then help you fill job openings from this demographic. But you can tell us, we, they need to have reliable transportation. They need to have one-year manufacturing experience. They can't have any of these three convictions. Like, this isn't a protected class. And what we know is, like, you can straight up tell us we don't hire felons, and there's nothing illegal about that. I think it should be illegal, but there's nothing illegal about it. Mm -hmm. And it's best for us if we can actually better serve this population if we say we understand the reality is that companies aren't going to hire every felon, someone, everyone with a record. But if you tell us what you can hire, we will do our best to find those people because every employer can't hire every felon, but like every employer can hire someone with a record. I believe that. Our recruiters do that. They then go out and they try to fill positions on your, your behalf. They do all the vetting, recruiting, and placement. So they'll, they'll set someone up with an interview with your company. If you hire them, and they stay. So the direct placement model is one where you have a retention guarantee. Once we place them with your job and you hire them, we give them weekly mentorship calls. We, we send a text survey twice a week to collect data. Like, how are you enjoying your work? How are you enjoying your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your coworkers? How do you feel about the next 90 days with this company? How do you feel about the next year? And we, give, we share that data with the employer too. So they're able to see, are we doing a good job? And then they, we invoice them after they meet the retention period. The cost of hiring someone through us 
through mm -hmm. the uh, direct placement program depends on the retention period. So right now we offer a 30-day retention and a 90-day retention. And, and we're aiming for 10% markup on salary for 30 days, 20% uh, markup on salary for 90 days. How do you do all that with seven people or are you adding? We're okay. adding. We just rolled this program out. So we, we mm -hmm. only have one contract solidified right now, but we're, we're in negotiations with three more contracts. Tell me about the round. The public disclosure is 1.3, but we know those can close higher. So what was the amount of it? Is it all angels? It was actually lower. It was interesting. Oh. When I saw that form, I, I'm not sure how they calculated that. but <laughs> okay. they, uh, Maybe they added yeah, so, in the 120 from Techstars or something. Well, that's what I'm wondering. We had a couple notes. So we had a okay. safe note and we had a convertible note and maybe they like rolled them all together because we converted it to share. So so we did a price round. We raised 1075000 That's not including the Techstars money. So we got 120 grand from Techstars. A month and a half after that, we had the investors approach us and say they wanted to invest. It took another month and a half to close the round, but uh, yeah, so 120 from Techstars and then 1,075,000 was from our investors. It was led by a VC called Matchstick Ventures. Matchstick mm -hmm. Ventures is led by Natty Zola, who was the director of Techstars Boulder for six years. Mm -hmm. um, he's a former founder turned VC and awesome guy. I really think that uh, our two investors were people that provide immense value outside of the money. They are interested in our social mission, but also positioned to help us increase revenue and help with our go-to-market strategy. So Natty and uh, Matchstick Ventures put in 575000 And then Caruso Ventures, which is a fund managed by Dan Caruso, who was the founder and CEO of Zayo Group. He's just a wealthy individual, very successful businessman who was a mentor to me during Techstars. And mm -hmm. he put in half a million as well. So it was just, it was two people. One was a VC fund. One was a wealthy individual. He, he runs a fund, but they're not a traditional VC. We had several other people offered to put in more money, but we, we did not feel that we needed more money at the time. The, the money wasn't necessarily going to drive up our valuation. So we were we just didn't, the, the cost benefit of giving up more equity for more money didn't make sense because right now we have 16 months. We have plenty of opportunity right in front of us. There's no reason to take on more cash at this time. And so that, that round pretty, sounds like it directly resulted from the connections made through Techstars. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you have the 16 month plan. In brief, what is that? Well, 16 months runway, assuming no revenue. And our plan is to have a lot of revenue and a lot of revenue in the next six months. So, uh, but what we plan to do is focus on three states until we potentially raise a series A, you know, eight to 12 months from now to kind of support a public private partnership initiative. When the state says they want it, it's much easier to get business leaders to say, okay, the state supports this initiative that's good for the community, it's good for racial justice, it's good for economic justice criminal justice reform, like all these things that are really important right now at this time in history. This is a way that an actionable way that corporations can get involved and help solve problems that actually helps them as well, finding talent, loyal talent. Uh, so that's, that's our plan. So your baseline um, starting today and, and coming through your COVID recovery, how many employers do you have on the platform right now and how many users? Yeah, so right now we have about 350 employers who mm -hmm. have have posted they have posted jobs with us. I would say we probably have 50 that log in once a month. 
and, and th some of those 50 log in like once a week, but I'm just saying like, if we limited it to companies who log in at least once a month, we probably have 40 to 50 companies who log mm -hmm. in once a month. Some of those companies are posting like one or one, two or three jobs. Some of those companies are posting 500, 600 jobs. So we have a lot of jobs on our platform across the country. And then as far as job seekers, I think right now we're just over 8,000 job mm -hmm. seekers. They're scattered out across the country. A lot of them in Ohio, a lot of them in uh, Georgia, Texas, and then surrounding Ohio too, like Pennsylvania, Kentucky. But uh, t you know, probably 60% of our users are in Ohio and, and the surrounding area. Do you hope for a day where service like this is not needed that you know that that there is more open-minded or do you think because of some of the legal aspects and the the vetting and the you know the checklists of what type of charges that you offer that there is still going to be a need i hope there's a day where this isn't needed i honestly do like i wouldn't care <laughs> like on, I, I hate to say it because this is like you know, the thing that could make me rich, but like, honestly, I am a founder that's pursuing something that I believe in such, to such a degree that like, if I put myself out of business, it's a good thing. As a thought leader in the space, I truly believe that just the idea of a felony is bad. There's no reason to give someone punishment and then brand them, put a sign on their head for the rest of their life that says, don't hire me, don't rent your apartment to me don't do anything. That is not part of the punishment. The punishment is supposed to be community supervision, you know, community service, restitution, or incarceration. I don't believe that society actually thinks making sure people can't find a place to live and can't find a job helps them improve. It does not convert them to a better citizen if they can't find a job or a house. So I firmly believe that Making them a protected class probably is not the best thing. I think the better thing to do would say, we're not going to give people records. They have a punishment and then their punishment is over. Like what is in a criminal record to where an, a, a private employer can see it, someone who rents houses can see it. If the idea is that we want them to assimilate back into the society, we have to let them do that. And right now we don't let them do that. After honest jobs, if if this is if I sell this company or we just take over the world and we're a big company, I hope to one day work with lobbyists or or not lobbyists, work with pu public officials to advocate for for that. I know it sounds crazy, but once you actually spend the time to learn about the issues and and see the economics of it all, it's it's bad for everyone having having the felony because uh, I think it's New York right now that's trying to pass a law that says after seven years everyone's record is expunged, no matter what the crime is. Mm -hmm. Because research shows after seven years, you're statistically less likely to commit a crime than someone who's never committed a crime before. It's just smart policy is what I want to advocate for. It's in, and everyone has biases. Their natural instinct tells them, well, if they committed a crime, if they murdered somebody, I want to know about that. Sure, well, you know, there's a lot of people who have committed a lot of crimes that didn't get caught. And they live next door to you and they work, they work with you and they drive your kids to school and they do all types of stuff. And just because they don't have a record doesn't mean they never did anything wrong. We, we get, I get asked a lot of interesting questions and, you know, I really believe that this is a solution within a problem. Mm -hmm. Finding a solution within the problem, the problem is much bigger than the problem I'm solving. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of time policy 
falls short of actually solving the problem, like ban the box, for instance. Like, I think it's great, and it's a great initiative. However, it doesn't it doesn't actually solve the problem. I don't believe it actually solves the problem. I think it procrastinates the problem. Like, they end up discriminating you further down the line, uh, or avoiding you altogether from the beginning. And ban the box being a, a, a law that says a job application no longer has the check if you've had a felony. Yeah. So we've had yeah, and, and I and I agree with it. Applications should not say that. I just think that making it a law to where they can't say it isn't always the best because the thing is is they're still going to do a background check, and we they're still a felon. <laughs> so like right then if they're going like to apply, right. they're going to get the interview, and then you're going to run a background check, and then you're going to tell them that you can't hire them. The truth is, is like that problem, like I said, it's a solution within a problem. Like the problem mm. didn't go away. It's just, it, it, it looks good. And a lot of really progressive cities have passed the ban the box law. And like, I applaud them for it. It's a good gesture, but it doesn't actually uh, solve, solve this problem, right? Because HR doesn't change their policy. They just say, oh, well, we have to find out later in the application process now. <laughs> doesn't mean that they have a meeting and they're like, you know what? We should hire felons because now we don't know until we later in the process. I think a better alternative would be something like what New York is doing. They actually just don't fail the background check. You know, 96, I think it says 96% of companies do background checks. Wow. And they're, do, they're doing them for a reason. They're doing it to avoid risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like when, when people have a felony conviction, 96% of the companies are going to find out about it. Most of those companies use that information to make a decision. So I'm assuming and hope this is the case, you're still close with your aunt. Uh, what else keeps you and keeps this company in Columbus? We have an office in Franklinton. You know, we have seven employees as of now. We should have probably 15 by the end of the year. Uh, and we're gonna continue to glow, grow our team here in Columbus um, until we have a financial reason to, to move, we'll, we'll be here in Columbus. And I, I love Columbus, you know, Ohio State was amazing. I love the, I love uh, Ohio State. You know, I came here with nothing, uh, you know, a prison GED, no opportunity, knowing no one. And now I'm raised $1.2 million and have a lot of employees and a lot of people who really believe and support what we're doing. Love, love Ohio. Okay. Well, you've been more than uh, generous with your time. And I know you said you're busy. Sorry about that. Uh, oh, sorry. So is there anything I forgot to ask about um, the, you know, uh, the trajectory of the business and, and what you think it can become? So I guess the only th- other things I would say is just like our vision. Our vision for the company is that some high level stats is like 30% of people in America have some type of criminal record. 9% of Americans have a felony conviction. Hmm. So 9% of all U.S. workers have a felony conviction. This is an enormous demographic that we know, in addition to having a felony, they face other economic barriers. Poverty, lack of education, racial barriers. Um, you know, we talked briefly about it, but race is heavily intertwined in this. Only one in 17 white men have a felony, whereas one in three black men have a felony. So every company in America is saying that they want to be diverse and inclusive. And you know, at this time in history, particularly for, for people of color, you cannot effectively do that in a large corporation until you are willing to address the challenges that this population has faced, especially 
understanding that they weren't necessarily just like this was not a fair system that people of color were were operating in historically. So when they ha when when one and three have a record, it's not because one and three of them are worse human beings or or have less potential to be a great employee. That's absolutely not the case. So we are building a solution that's going to hopefully help the poor and over punished, over incarcerated population overcome extreme barriers to just a fair lived experience in America. And it is an enormous population of nearly 28 million Americans that have a felony, that they want jobs, they want economic opportunity. And this is why we believe it is also important opportunity to collaborate with states is because this is something that politicians will be praised for. Even if it's not with us, but investing in solutions is something that we believe is something that the government and public and, and private and public companies should be investing in. So our vision is that we can have a solution where every American coming out of incarceration is handed off to a service that effectively helps them navigate getting back into the workforce in a fair and effective way. And, and we believe we're uniquely positioned to work with states to build out those, those ecosystems and that technology. Our, our goal is 620, 656,000 people are released from incarceration every year. We want to get 656,000 of them back to work within 60 days. So that's, that's really our vision, and it's a huge vision, and it will be extremely rewarding from a social impact perspective as well as hopefully financial as well. So that's it. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Bye.